Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're talking about the Lovecraftian deity, Yog Sothoth. But first, the news. Well, what news? What news? Well, first of all, not long after this episode goes out, so be quick, we will be at the Concrete Cow Convention in Milton Keynes. On Saturday the 17th of March, it takes place at the old bathhouse in Wolverton. We'll put a link in the show notes, so if you're not sure of how to find the place, you'll be able to after that. Yep, we'll be there playing games, running games, and hoping to see some listeners there. And Scott, I see one of your scenarios, Hell in Texas, is being put out by the Lovecraft tapes. Yeah, I, I only encountered the Lovecraft tapes fairly recently. They're uh, an American actual play podcast, and they take a, a rather unusual approach to Call of Cthulhu. They're much more comedic than most, certainly, Call of Cthulhu podcasts. But at the same time, they balance their style between lots of wisecracks and and kind of silliness with actually taking the scenario itself fairly seriously. Oh, okay, because I was going to say, Hell in Texas is a kind of a laugh-a-minute ride, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but no, they've managed to bring out quite a lot of the horror there as well. Right. Yeah, between that and a combination of some really good voice acting and, and wit, it's fast become one of my favourite AP podcasts. Cool. And speaking of running out of time... Our Nameless Horrors competition will be drawn, winners will be drawn for that, on the 24th of March. So a copy could be winging its way across the ghoul winds towards you anytime soon. If you want to enter, it's not too late. All you have to do is share episode 124, which is our inspiration and development episode. Share that on social media and let us know. Just send us a link to it because apparently notifications are a bit flaky. Also on the 24th of March... We're going to have a backer chat. So if you are a backer of our show on Patreon, you'll get an invite to come over and join us on Discord, where we'll be having a real-time chat among ourselves and with uh, anybody that turns up. And we'll be holding that between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock GMT. Which should correspond to 10 a.m. PST, 1 p.m. EST, or 7 p.m. CET. And if you're in a different time zone, Google will tell you. (laughs) And one last bit of news. We are delighted to announce that we have once again been nominated for a Golden Geek Award in the category of Best RPG Podcast. So if you're eligible to vote, we would encourage you to head over to BoardGameGeek and cast your votes. Voting closes just two days after the release of this podcast on Thursday the 8th of March. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word of the week is... Conjuries. It's noun. One. A collection of items or parts in one mass. Assemblage. Aggregation. Heap. Or in other words, how to describe an IKEA flat pack collection guide. And this is a word that I thought looked like a plural because it's conjuries. So it looks like yeah. there's there's a number of them. But actually it's a, a bunch of things sort of amassed together and we can have a conjuries, not a conjury. Of congereels. Don't or, bring in the congereels. Or, or congee. <laughs> or congee. But uh, yeah, conjuries can be a singular, it can be a plural. Uh, it's, I guess, one of these words like fish that could be either. Could you have a conjuries of congereels and congee? Yes. Yes, Good. you could. I want to see that. I just think it shouldn't be spelt with a G. It should be spelt with a J. Because that's how it sounds. Well, just like congee. What is this stuff you keep referencing? Congee is like rice porridge. Oh. Also, it's the English language. When did we have consistency about how things were spelt based on how they sound? There, G- there and there. <laughs> G, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but this is one of these unusual words that I actually learned from reading Lovecraft in the first place uh, many, many years ago. I don't think I'd ever encountered the word conjuries anywhere else. 
Has it enriched your life, Scott? It has. I, I do every now and then try to use it gratuitously. Do you? <laughs> I can just imagine him now lathering himself up with this rice. <laughs> no, conjurers, Matt. Conjurers. <laughs> yeah, but, but with the conjuries of, of congee. A fairly scant rating on the Lovecraftometer of only seven times in his main fiction. But, you know, it's an unusual word, so I think seven times is still remarkable. Too busy with the beans and crackers, that's why. No time for rice in his life. Well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word conjuries in his writings. From The Whisperer in Darkness. On my left, across a well-kept lawn, which stretched to the road and flaunted a border of whitewashed stones, rose a white two-and-a-half-storey house of unusual size and elegance for the region, with a congeries of contiguous or arcade-linked barns, sheds and windmill behind and to the right. And from At the Mountains of Madness. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train. A shapeless conjuries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. And from The Dreams in the Witch House. The roaring twilight abysses, the green hillside, the blistering terrace, the pools from the stars, the ultimate black vortex, the black man, the muddy alley and the stairs, the old witch and the fanged furry horror, the bubble conjuries and the little polyhedron, the strange sunburn, the wrist wound, the unexplained image, the muddy feet, the throat marks, the tales and fears of the superstitious foreigners. What did all this mean? Answers, please, on a postcard. postcard. <laughs> yeah. And 15 M dashes in one sentence. <laughs> So, That's so, quite a lot. That, 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 that is a veritable conjuries of M dashes. <laughs> yeah. And now on to our main topic. Yogg-Sothoth! Yes, we are continuing our discussion of Lovecraftian deities. We did an episode on Dagon back in episode 98 and Shubnikarath back in episode 115. We also talked in general terms about the way Lovecraft used gods in episode 67 and touched on the idea of the mythos as religion in episodes 118 and 119. This Yogg-Sothoth guy's got a lot of names, hasn't he? The all-in-one, the gate, the key, the lurker at the threshold. He goes by many names. Yep. Mm -hmm. His friends call him Yogi, though. <laughs> I thought that was a different website that used that term. <laughs> well, indeed, it has been adopted by Paul McLean as the name for his website, yogsothoth.com, which we all know and love. But it's notable that Lovecraft referred to his body of work as yogsothery. Yogsothothery, even. Yeah, I'll that may that. be why it didn't catch on as a name. Because <laughs> I'm Cthulhu Mythos may be you know, not his first choice, but you can pronounce it. Yeah, Yogg's not Yogg, yeah, anyway. Yogg-Sothothry. Yogg-Sothothry. Yeah, actually, now I come to say it aloud, it doesn't quite drip off the tongue as I thought. No. <laughs> so if Derleth hadn't coined the term Cthulhu Mythos, as he did, then we might be calling it something quite different. And Yogg-Sothoth would be the big name rather than the old tentacled Cthulhu. Hmm. Even though he was overshadowed by Cthulhu, I'd say Yogg-Sothoth is probably one of the best known of Lovecraft's deities. Probably after Cthulhu himself and probably Nyarlathotep, he's, he's probably the one who's most likely to get mentioned. Yeah, I think Nyarlathotep crops up in a lot of places and we have the, the classic campaign, the mass of Nyarlathotep. But Yogg-Sothoth, when we look at him in Lovecraft, he's invoked a lot by people just like saying... Yogg-Sothoth save me, or, or calling out to Yogg-Sothoth for help and blessing, as we might call it, as a, as a religious person might call out to, to, to God or whoever. Unlike the other gods that we've talked about so far, though, Yogg-Sothoth does seem to be pretty much entirely Lovecraft's own invention. Dagon obviously was based on the Philistine god, and uh, Shubnikarath, you know, t seemed to take the name partly perhaps from Lord Dunsany. The goatish aspects of it seem to draw an awful lot on, on medieval witch legends. But Yogg-Sothoth is something unique to Lovecraft. 
Now Lovecraft created a playful family tree to the elder races and gods in a 1933 letter to James F. Morton. He states that Yogg-Sothoth and Chubnigarath are, you know, getting it on, their mates, and birthing the twin abominations of Nug and Yeb, as well as Cthulhu, Sathogwa, and a number of lesser entities. Indeed, Yogg-Sothoth himself was born of the nameless mist, in turn, the spawn of Azathoth. What do you make of this? I, I think he's kind of like mocking his own creations yeah. in these letters mm -hmm. between I, friends, but I don't really take that as something that we should take as part of the, the canon, if you like. No, yeah, I, God, I, no. I, I think, you know, if you're looking at it from a scholarship point of view, the technical term for, for work like this is wank. I was just going to say bullshit, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I was going there, but you two guys have nailed it. Right. <laughs> That doesn't mean you can't have fun and play with some of these things or you know, have this being some of the kind of random stuff that cultists might believe. In the end, does it really matter? Actually, I like that, that the cultists believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool that they would see that as actual fact, that that's a, a kind of hierarchy in a family tree of the gods. And that's as some cultures have worshipped a pantheon of gods that are interrelated. Oh, exactly. I mean, if you look at some of the polytheistic religions, the idea of family trees of gods becomes quite important. And, you know, so-and-so uh, begat so-and-so and, you know, these huge nested structures. The one that Lovecraft created was much simpler than that, but, mm. you know, it's, it, it has precedent. It's also a bit too humanising, I think, putting yeah. it into into terms that the cultists can relate to. The fact that, oh, this this obviously Zeus-like figure that's sleeping around with all the other gods, making these other little god uh, other little god babies, it's something that they can see as being very human and puts the, almost a connection to them. I think that's the complete antithesis of what they should be doing, personally. But the cultists <laughs> yeah. might think that's the exactly. case. Yeah, exactly. Not that yeah, that yeah. is the case, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah. I always associated Yogg-Sothoth with the Dunwich Horror. But, uh, of course, kind of reading back and over stuff and, and refreshing my memory before doing this episode reminded me that that's not where he comes from originally, that his first mention actually comes from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Even though, um, wonderfully fitting with consistency, that the spelling isn't the same. <laughs> it's no. uh, very inconsistent all the way through the story. Yeah, we have Yog sometimes spelt with two G's, or even Yog Sothotha, or Yogi, that it looks like. <laughs> but no matter how it's pronounced, I mean, Yog Sothoth is invoked an awful lot in this story. He seems to be this power upon which sorcerers draw, that he is associated with magic or those who would seek power. It's also where, um, I believe, Sandy Peterson gets his usual sign-off on emails from as well. Um, he uses Simon Orm's Yog Sothoth Neblod Zin quite oh, frequently. Yes. yes. Yeah, which which does come from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And yeah, I mean that uh I mean a lot of the made up language that uh Lovecraft uses is quite evocative, but I, I don't know. I mean, this sounds like something from a 1950s EC comic. And this will probably be one of our more erudite listeners contacts me and points out that this, this is actually, you know, some real invocation, but, uh, or, or some, you know, some, something from a real language. But it does sound very kind of 1950s SF. So in the story of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, there are invocations of Yogg-Sothoth and we see them raising the dead from their essential salts, implying that Yogg-Sothoth has power over life and death and the ability to, to put things together and change things, not only in time and space, but in physicality. In fact, uh, at some point, Willett, the protagonist of, of the story, encounters some notes written apparently in Kerwin's hand, of which it mentions, uh, raised Yogg-Sothoth thrice and was the next day delivered. Which makes him sound like an avatar of Amazon, maybe. But <laughs> Do you think this, this aspect of life and death perhaps ties in with what we perhaps as Call of Cthulhu players associate more with Yogg-Sothoth, which is his, his aspect as, as a controller of time and space? Or is, is this something different? It all depends on how you argue it. This, this comes down to like the... Um 
not the argument, but part of the debate that a lot of mage players have, how do you create a certain effect? Is it a death effect to raise a corpse from the ground, or is it a time effect by rewinding their time stream to the point when they, when that corpse was once alive? Is it a life effect by imbuing life into the figure? It's just about all you how you interpret it. Yeah, I guess with this, I mean, you're, you're talking about reducing bodies to their essential salts and then raising them up from that. Is that an act of sorcery where you're drawing upon the power of Yogg-Sothoth, or is this some way of perhaps reversing entropy and and reconstituting this living being, this body from you know its its ruined remains? Yeah, I'd say it's more like alchemy that it is an arcane science rather than sorcery. So maybe hey, they just throw Yogg-Sothoth in, in in for good measure as a bit of blessing, almost like throwing salt over your shoulder to catch the devil in the eye. It's more of a, a gesture than it is actually having a tangible effect. Well, except the ending of the story actually goes against that because, uh, well, it does perform this ritual which basically undoes the raising. And it's, it's not alchemy, it is a ritual uh, mm. that again calls upon the power of Yogg-Sothoth. But as you mentioned, Scott, probably the most famous use of Yogg-Sothoth comes from the Dunwich Horror. We see it writ loud in, in the, the film of the same name um, <laughs> with Dean Stockwell. It kind of has most of Lovecraft's story with, with you know, with added love interest. What more could you want? <laughs> more, more importantly, it's got, you know, Dean Stockwell shouting, Yogg-Sothoth! Yogg-Sothoth! Indeed it does. And in the story, we get quite a lot of information about Yogg-Sothoth. We rarely see Yogg-Sothoth manifest, but as you go through the stories, you do get odd paragraphs that seem to tell you, you know, something about this god. And Armitage reads from the Necronomicon, The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and the guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old, and where they shall break through again. As a foulness ye shall know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate, whereby the spheres meet." Actually, it's interesting. There's that last bit there where the spheres meet. It seems to imply sort of the meeting of spheres of reality or the meeting of uh, the planets or heavenly bodies. But when we start coming to August Erlis' uh, description, which, which we'll mention a bit later, then he takes that very literally, and I think that's a very Derlis thing to do. He takes it that Yogg-Sothoth is made up of spheres. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the story, I don't know which horror... Yogg-Sothoth fathers two offspring with a human mate, Lavinia Waitley. One, Wilbur Waitley, looks largely human, at least while clothed, mentally appearing to be a bearded adult at the age of ten. His chest is scaled and his lower body is furred, with a score of tentacles protruding from his abdomen, alongside many even less human aspects. Now, in 2005, the three of us went to a convention in Stockholm called... Miskatonicon. Miskatonicon, that was it, yes. And there was a stage production of A Shog Off on the Roof, the, oh, the H.P. Ghoul. Lovecraft Historical Society musical. The ghoul stole, the show, stole that ah, show. Ah, yes, <laughs> but there was a character playing Wilbur Waitley. And to get that strange writhing of his abdomen, do you remember what they did? I just remember the ghoul being beaten, no, uh, him being he beaten had up a by a sex toy under his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what? I've forgotten that. Yes, he did. Oh. Some sort of phallic object with a rotating head that uh, was kind of going on under his shirt to get that sense of movement. Um, chickawawa. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yes, Yogg Sothoth is the gate and the key. Mostly the key. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some cosmic horror for you. <laughs> but Wilbur Waitley is not an only child. Oh, no. He has a twin brother. And the brother takes more after dad he is vast and invisible well i mean it's a, it's a good thing he's invisible because when what? his form is revealed in the story well what does he look like scott because i can't really picture it can you tell me what he looks like well apparently it was an octopus centipede spider kind of thing but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it i'm not quite getting it <laughs> 
what was it? Did, did I start is it? it? <laughs> no, is it, is it an octopus centipede spider kind of thing? Is that what you said? Yes, that kind okay. of thing. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I get that now. But with a yeah. half-shaped face on top of it. Oh, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Not on the front of it, on the top of it. Yeah, I yeah. think we can all picture that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'd be silly if it were anywhere else. <laughs> it'd look ridiculous, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least it wasn't indescribable. <laughs> well, they did, they did a good enough job that they produced a model for it for Arkham Horror. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, I've got it sat on my shelf at home. All right. Do you, do you have to sprinkle the powder of Ibn over it every time you want to play? <laughs> you had to pay extra for that. Lovecraft's collaboration with E. Hoffman Price through the gates of the Silver Key portrays a more benign aspect of Yogg-Sothoth. This is the one that actually I uh, always come to mind to first whenever I think of the god, rather than the Dunwich Horror. The frightful guide and guardian at the gate, Umar at Tawil, the ancient one, which the scribe rendereth the prolonged of life. Yeah, this avatar is a, ga- a gatekeeper of sorts who guides Randolph Carter in his transcendence, allowing him passage through the ultimate gate. There was another shape, too, which occupied no pedestal, but which seemed to glide or float over the cloudy floor-like lower level. It was not exactly permanent in outline, but held transient suggestions of something remotely preceding or paralleling the human form. Though half as large again as an ordinary man, it seemed to be heavily cloaked like the shapes on the pedestals, with some neutral coloured fabric, and Carter could not detect any eye holes through which it might gaze. And I think, notably, this is maybe the only Lovecraftian god, or certainly one of the very few in Call of Cthulhu, where seeing it incurs no sand loss. Is Nodens the only other one? Yeah, I don't know. If you look in the Malleus Monstorum, this particular avatar does not provoke any sand loss. Yeah, Yeah, unless it undoes its robes. At that point, it's like a D20. It's quite a shock. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the microphone doesn't get the flashing uh, motion that Paul just made there. (laughs) Yay. Lowering the tone there. Uh, Well, at least he only mimed it this time. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a strange one when you get things that are taken to be mind-blowing evil you know, broadly, but then they seem to be helpful. It's a tricky one, I think, for us. But then we don't want things completely black and white. It's because they're beyond good and evil. Ah, yes. Indeed. The very human concepts, after all. I mean, let's let's think about this in Call of Cthulhu terms. You've got this concept in Call of Cthulhu. Was this in the game originally, or was this something that you put in? That your consciousness is transformed when your Cthulhu mythos exceeds your sanity? Uh, Yes, that was new in 7th edition. And I think this is actually an example of that, that what this particular avatar of Yogg-Sothoth does is it does provide this gateway to some kind of cosmic consciousness that may not be an evil thing, but it is, if you look at the mythos as a, a source of inhuman corruption, it is a transformative thing and not necessarily in a good way. That you are passing beyond what it means to be human. Your, your mind is, is becoming like the entities that live beyond and above us. Mm. And, yeah, in, in terms of, of Call of Cthulhu and, and sanity in the Cthulhu mythos, this probably isn't a good thing. No, in, in the in the context of the story, if I remember correctly, it's Carter passing through the ultimate gate after his confrontation with the ancient ones, the beings that are mentioned on the pillars in the quote. He joins with Yogg-Sothoth to realise that ultimately every living thing, every part of every living thing's consciousness in the universe is all connected to Yogg-Sothoth and that it's how he can connect with other facets of his own soul that have been spread throughout time and space and that by ultimately passing through that gate, he could potentially become one with the Ancient Ones who have sat outside of all known physical universes. And you've got to wonder whether Lovecraft himself saw this as a good thing, because if you compare this to, say, the start of The Call of Cthulhu, where the idea is that our ignorance, our inability to piece everything together, is what saves us, and this is the polar opposite, this is the ultimate experience in piecing everything together, suddenly we are connected to everything out there, we understand it all. And, yeah, this can't be a good thing. So Yogg-Sothoth is also name-checked in a few other of Lovecraft's stories, including The Whisperer in Darkness. I suppose you know all about the fearful myths antedating the coming of man to the earth, the Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu cycles, which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. Also mentioned in passing as a reference, 
from the Necronomicon, doesn't that get everywhere, in At the Mountains of Madness. And also famously at the end of The Haunter of the Dark. I see it coming here. Hellwind, Titan Blur, Black Wings, Yogg-Sothoth, save me, the three-lobed burning eye. And I've realised that this makes Yogg-Sothoth the last deity mentioned by name in a work of Lovecraft, because that was his final story. Mm. Yeah, after the tip beats him in the very last, uh, the very last few words, but but, but not, not by name. named. Mm-hmm. And now we take a look at Yogg-Sothoth in later fiction. Well, I guess perhaps August Erleth takes the lead here giving us a fairly definitive physical description of Yogg-Sothoth in The Lurker at the Threshold. Here's, in inverted commas, posthumous collaboration with Lovecraft. Yeah, and just to give some context to this, I, Derleth wrote a whole bunch of stories which he called posthumous collaborations, which basically meant that he took usually uh, you know one or two line entries from, from Lovecraft's commonplace book, or maybe a few notes on an unfinished story or something he mentioned in a letter, and basically wrote a story around that. And these stories were you know, 99.9% Derleth. Great globes of light massing towards the opening the breaking apart of the nearest globes and the protoplasmic flesh that flowed blackly outward to join together and form that eldritch, hideous horror from outer space, whose mask was a conjuries of iridescent globes, who froths as primal slime in nuclear chaos forever beyond the nethermost outposts of space and time. So yes, there we had that very literal interpretation of globes. And conjurers. Oh yep, can't miss the conjuries. Conjuries of iridescent globes. More interestingly, I think, Clark Ashton Smith wrote a story called The Chain of a Forgamon, or a Forgamon, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. This is a god of time, which one of the characters encounters by taking a drug that allows him to experience past lives. And he goes back to a time where a, a previous incarnation had encountered this god and committed blasphemies against it. The god is never mentioned in the story specifically as being related to Yogg-Sothoth, but certainly in the Malleus Monstorum, it's been identified as being an avatar of Yogg-Sothoth. And yeah, I'm, I'm sort of willing to go along with that. Then we see the name spelt somewhat differently, but if we sound it out, it doesn't sound so very different to Yogg-Sothoth. We have Eok-Sothoth from Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus, uh, where he is referred to as the Eater of Souls. Yeah, and Grant Morrison borrowed both those appellations when he did his, his comic series. But I don't know, I, I assume most people who are Lovecraft fans have heard of Zenith. If not, it's worth seeking out. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's out of print and probably has been for a very, very long time. But if it comes back into print, yeah, it's, it's worth looking at because it's this bizarre mixture of superheroes, Nazi super science and the Cthulhu mythos where these superheroes or super creatures, superhumans were created in the Second World War by basically summoning up the older gods and Yogg-Sothoth for one and binding them in human form. Now, here's an author that desperately wants to be at the front of any alphabetical queue. Yeah, he should set up a taxi company with this <laughs> name. Yeah. A, A, Atanasoyo. I, 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 I don't know how mm-hmm. it's pronounced. I've, I've always said Atanasio, or I imagine it's probably more likely Atanasio. Atanasio, there we go. Um, depicts Yogg-Sothoth as relating to empty spaces in his story Glimpses. It involves a strange alien stone with a hole in the centre, the void of which is connected to Yogg-Sothoth. Well, that's quite a neat idea. Yeah, you yeah. say that he is the gap, he is the... Yeah, the void. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I love A.A. Atanasio's work, but I mean, Glimpses, I think, was one of the first stories he wrote, and I can't say I particularly recommend that. I mean, he's written a number of other Lovecrafting pieces. Uh, he's written some great science fiction. By all means, look those out, but don't expect too much from Glimpses. Now, one work I can thoroughly recommend is Resume with Monsters by William Browning Spencer. This is a novel about a guy who... You know, he's trying to hold down a regular job, but he is afflicted either by delusions or by elder gods. And 
he has a real struggle with his life, but it's a very comedic kind of black comedy story with very strong ties to the Cthulhu mythos quite explicitly. And ultimately, the, the main character develops quite a bizarre close relationship with Yogg-Sothoth. It's, it's hard to communicate what this novel is like. It's not slapstick, but it is comedic. It's kind of wry. But disquieting at the same yeah. time. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a great work. I think it's it's really good, but <laughs> quite different to any anybody else's take on the Cthulhu mythos that I've ever read before. It always makes me think of many, many years ago, one of the first conventions that you and I went to, Paul, it was either Battle Masters or Continuum. It, mm. it was in Leicester anyway. And, you know, it, it was shortly after, you know, I'd lent you resume with Monsters and you'd read it and we, we'd spent a long time talking about it. And... <laughs> This was the convention where we arrived there early on the first day and did the obvious thing of going to the pub. And instead of playing any games, we just sat there until, you know, until kicking out time and then went back to the bar at, at the venue and sat there until something like three in the morning. You know, a whole bunch of us putting the world to rights and just getting absolutely shit-faced. And while we'd been out at lunchtime, you bought a prawn sandwich and you stuck it in your back pocket and it had been, you know, you'd been sitting next to a radiator all day and this was during the height of summer anyway. And uh, at the end of this this long drinking session, some 12 hours later, uh, you, you were peckish and you kind of pulled out this prawn sandwich. Well, I got back to my room and I was hungry, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so between that and the alcohol, I remember you know, getting a phone call from you first thing the following morning saying, oh, can you cancel my game this morning? I spent all night on the telephone with Yogg Sothoth. Oh, did I? I wonder where you were going with this story. <laughs> <laughs> praying to the globed god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I did quite a bit of praying to the uh, yeah, yeah. The, the great gods there. Yeah. I think so, he appeared before me at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, yeah, this this I think fell into parlance for a short while is is yeah, a good excuse for being ill. I've been on the telephone to Yogg-Sothoth. But at least you don't bring that anecdote up very often, Scott. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm been glad about that over the years. Yeah. Bring up the prawn sandwich but never the telephone call. <laughs> And now we take a look at Yogg-Sothoth in gaming. So in Call of Cthulhu, Yogg-Sothoth is described in these terms. Yogg-Sothoth dwells in the interstices between the planes that compose the universe. There it manifests as a conglomeration of iridescent globes, which are always shifting, flowing into one another and breaking. And it's here that I realise I've never heard the word interstices or interstices spoken aloud and i'm not really sure how to say it i I, i've certainly heard it as interstitial uh so i say it's interstices but okay well listeners there's a new one on us yeah uh, but anyway moving on yeah (laughs) so we have these giant iridescent globes and these are big globes aren't they these are really really big globes from a hundred yards across to and this is a useful phrase up to half a mile or more. So basically, it could be any size, <laughs> as long as it's at least a hundred yards. But then again, it could be smaller yeah. than that. Big ass globes. Yeah, I like big globes, and I cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not be able to lie, but these can fly. And they can fly at speed. Oh, yes. They're referred to, I think, in the text as being able to fly at... Gosh. Speed of sound or something crazy like that? Oh, it's, it's more than that. I, 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 we, we didn't make a note of this bit, but let's just say really fast. Yeah. One of those bits of game mechanic data that is totally meaningless. It just means as fast as you want. But we will quantify mm-hmm. it in the text. A bit like I remember there's one, I think it's when it comes down to the dolls where it says damage bonus enough to crush a battleship. The advice on how to use Yogg-Sothoth includes that he is preeminently the deity of sorcerers and wizards. He grants them the power to travel between the planes or the power to see into other planes via a piece of magic glass or the like. 
So, yeah, he's kind of like the god of space and time, as we said. So he's a really useful thing for human wizards and so on to, to interact with. And to- but again, if we go back to the idea of, of the way he's used in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, that seems to be one small facet. So my reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward is that he's more like a sort of almost universal energy source. You know, I need to do a bit of magic. I shall call upon the power of Yogg-Sothoth that is perhaps less useful in game terms because, yes, all right, you can use him as a way of doing almost anything you want. But at the same time, you know, there's that idea that constraints you know, inspire creativity. And if you say, hey, you can do any magic you want with Yogg Sarthas, it's okay, fine. Well, what, what do I do with him? Mm. But as soon as you say, oh, yeah, he's the god of space and time, you know, still cover almost anything you might want to do. But it starts planting ideas and, and themes in your head. And many of those effects would be codified within the spells. Yes. So in game terms, we'd find him giving the spell to create a gate box or, or something of that nature. And then it comes to one bit in the, the description, which I must admit I'm less keen on. In return for these gifts, worshippers open the way for Yogg-Sothoth to travel from his usual domains to Earth to ravage and plunder. Now, certainly you know, the idea that you're opening the way for Yogg-Sothoth is there in the Dunwich Horror. The ritual that uh, is going on on Sentinel Hill seems to be trying to bring him through. But this idea of ravage and plunder, I don't know, seems very reductive and simple for... Well, it uh, makes him sound almost like a mythos Viking, really, yeah. doesn't it? It's like you expect to see this bubble come through wearing a helmet with horns on it. <laughs> I, I don't think you should ever really feel constrained about that i think you know whatever reason yogg-sothoth might have for wanting to come to this plane should be you know beyond human understanding and is you know he's not just here for the all-you-can-eat buffet but he does have some cool attacks in call of cthulhu he has the ability the spheres can cause 3d10 con damage which seems fairly light really when we also consider that he can throw bolts up to half a mile to destroy any normal object. So he can either toy with you by stroking you with his bubble. And make you feel a bit ill. Or just do the good old Zeus. Splat. Yeah, Yeah. lightning bolt. Destruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Empire State Building. Gone. (laughs) And there's also the idea that he can transport one character per round anywhere in the universe or anywhere in time by touching him. Yeah. Okay, you're, you're transported to the middle of the sun. Uh, roll damage. <laughs> Every round. How, how many D6, Scott? All of them. Every D6. <laughs> Everyone's D6 yeah. in the world. Yeah. Right. Pop character, you might roll all ones. Survive. <laughs> yeah, but it's still 56,000 million ones. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I spend all my luck. <laughs> and, and again... <laughs> So a pop character can survive being at the centre of the sun for one round. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's worse than that. A pop character can survive the experience of being teleported to the centre of the sun, and then the player gets to explain how their character managed to walk away from the whole thing later. <laughs> it's a very long walk back from the sun. <laughs> <laughs> but also, the game does mention his, his other aspect, the one we touched on before, is Tawil at Amur. And this Tawil at Umrah can remove its veil and cause utter madness and destruction to those dealing with it. So it's a fairly uh, terrible adversary. But then, mm-hmm. you know, he's a god. What can you, uh, what can you expect? Yeah. From, what, from memory, I think it's either 1 or 2d20. It's still, uh, still a fairly big hit. Again, I think, you know, treating these, these deities as monsters or just sanity-blasting devices is probably the least interesting way of doing it. If your character has got as far as interacting with Yogg-Sothoth, assuming that they haven't completely blown their minds by failing a D100 sand roll, then I think something more interesting than just death or madness should result. Now, let's take a look at what we can do with Yogg-Sothoth in our games. As I touched on before, Yogg-Sothoth is an incredibly versatile god. You know, the way you can use Shubnigarath is basically a dropping component for anything involving corrupted nature or biology or transformation. Then you've got Yogg-Sothoth at the very least as a vehicle for playing with time and space. And in quite a few of these stories, it occurs to me in the case of Charles Dexter Ward and to, perhaps to a lesser extent in the Dunwich Horror, we see 
human wizards drawing upon the power of Yogg-Sothoth. Mm. It seems very much that humans are channeling the power of Yogg-Sothoth. So that could be NPCs, it could be PCs. It makes it easy for us to use Yogg-Sothoth with a, a fairly accessible adversaries, of, of human adversaries drawing upon the power, rather than having to put mm. monsters in in some way. It also kind of raises an interesting question, which is, what is it specifically about Yogg-Sothoth that makes all these sorcerers draw upon his power and not, say, Azathoth? And it's almost like Yogg-Sothoth wants to be used in that way. There is that little bit in the uh, the Call of Cthulhu rulebook and, and in the Malice Monstorum about wanting to trade power in, in return for being summoned. But I could almost see ways of using him in a game where it's, it's a subtly different than that, where maybe every time his power is invoked is giving him a bit more of a foothold in this world. By using him as this magical power source, you're effectively becoming a conduit, manifesting him by degrees in our world. I mean, it seems a bit like Azathoth is a nuclear explosion. I can't plug into a nuclear explosion but I can plug into a main socket on the wall, which is a bit like plugging into Yogg-Sothoth somehow. I can call upon it, and it seems to come in a, in a measured way that I can manage. Basically, Yogg-Sothoth is like the USB interface to Azathoth. Yeah, kind of ACDC current. But it does seem like that, right? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm being a bit sort of tongue-in-cheek about it, but it, it does seem like Azathoth. You can't really call on Azathoth because it's just chaos. And if you're going to call upon something, then if you're going to open that door to the, the spiritual realm or whatever, if you're opening it to utter chaos, what can you do with that? Because our Mason might have a few choice words to throw at you there. Well, maybe she was powerful enough to do that. Maybe she could shape that chaos, but for most wizards, maybe it's too strong a channel. But also, on the other hand, I mean, Kazai Mason had been dealing with this aspect of, of Nialathotep, the black man, mm. who sort of acted almost as her intermediary. I mean, maybe, you're sure. I mean, all right, she was, she was drawing upon Azathoth and so on, but she'd laid the groundwork there, potentially, with Nialathotep. Mm. I'm more and more drawn to this idea now that Yogg-Sothoth wants to be used that by getting humans to draw upon his power, that he's getting something more out of it than, you know, just minions who might summon him up. And let's say we do run with this idea of, you know, every time he uses magic, you're manifesting him a bit more in this world. It then becomes, in, you know, the interests of particularly of, of humans who would serve Yogg-Sothoth, to sort of find ways of tricking people or trapping them into drawing upon him perhaps weaving rituals into you know other forms of, of ritual magic and so on that we might expect to see in you know in our world and the the non-mythos world weaving them into things like children's nursery rhymes if you're saying that he wants to be used it's kind of making me think of a spider drawing people into its web i mean yeah. i don't really see it as a reciprocal relationship the wizards are drawing upon yogg-sothoth's power but does Yogg-Sothoth really need them? He, he does well, seem to be shut outside of our sphere of space and time in some way. Well, like I say, I mean, if every time he's called upon, it's sort of weakening the barriers that are holding him back. Let's say you had a scenario where a bunch of kids had learned some new playground song. Something really trivial made them better at playing hopscotch or jacks or something. It, very, very small effect. But, you know, every time they do so, they're calling this, you know, in amongst the rhyme, these strange syllables, Yogg-Sothoth. This becomes more and more of a thing, you know, the, the, the way that playground rhymes and chants spread, you know, between schools and across generations. What starts out as a simple little game spreads across the world like a disease, and every time the children are playing one of these games, they're just weakening the fabric of reality, and then sooner or later, everything is just going to start cascading through. Now, the Call of Cthulhu rulebook suggests a connection between Yogg-Sothoth and UFO sightings. This seems a bit of a stretch to me. I mean, I wonder if it's just like from the fact that he's described as spheres and they could be seen floating up in the sky and mistaken as a UFO. The other thing that occurs to me here is that, you know, seizing upon the aspect of Yogg-Sothoth being related to space and time and transportation... Yes, you know, you've got people perhaps moving through space as a result and maybe, you know, interpreting that as, as you know, having been taken away on an alien spaceship. But probably the more defining characteristic, at least, of a lot of, you know, 90s stories of UFO abductions is this idea of lost time. Hmm. 
Yeah, maybe when you encounter Yogg-Sothoth, instead of having lost time because you've been off on an alien spaceship and had your memory wiped, maybe you are just skipping forward eight hours. You've just brushed up against something that that doesn't behave nicely with time. What if that effect isn't just a one-off? What if, like Billy Pilgrim, you become unstuck in time at this stage? Yeah, or uh, Groundhog Day. Yeah. Another thing with the space and time. So we have characters that are perhaps being affected by space and time but if you're being attacked by that perhaps you're being removed from space and time you know what if you were removed from space and time people would stop recognizing you you'd stop being able to interact with everyday objects but if this happened slowly and gradually i think that'd be a quite a horrific thing to have to happen to you we we do see this a little bit in that clark ashton smith story i mentioned earlier the chains of a Fogmon. But it doesn't specifically happen to a living character in there. But the character who suffers the curse at the centre of this, who is punished for his past life's transgressions, what the narrator of the story realises, or or thinks is happening, is that people are beginning to forget about this character, that he is beginning to fade out from people's memories, that he is beginning to fade out from reality itself. The fact that he's already dead at this stage means that that's sad, but it's not necessarily deeply horrific. But, yeah, if you had that happening to a living person, if you could place a curse on someone and had them, say, gradually, bit by bit, forgotten by everyone around them, not even just disappearing from space and time. But being forgotten, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is a horrifying thing. As anyone who's ever dealt with a loved one who's got dementia will know, gradually seeing, you know, the people you love forget who you are is one of the most horrifying things you can go through. And having that happen with everyone around you dear god i can imagine it happening to the pcs but you know the pcs they can all interact but what if then there was some kind of in-game mechanic that actually stopped you being able to interact with your fellow players as well Mm. so that you were just you scott and there was just you matt and you're at the table but you can no longer interact but you're in the same world in some way i don't know quite how that would work but you know that that kind of separation and isolation that could be caused by that yeah quite a a cool thing for the end of the scenario and i don't know how quite how the the player characters would fight against it but perhaps you know there is some way they can struggle against that as part of the game maybe even not even of saving themselves but just you know some last way of being remembered before Mm. they vanish completely that can make for quite a poignant scenario now quite a different take on yogg-sothoth comes from Kenneth Grant, an occultist, a follower of Alistair Crowley's Thelema, who latched upon Yogg-Sothoth in relation to the, the spheres of the Kabbalistic Klipoth. Grant also related him to the demon Corinzen. Yeah, I thought this was quite interesting. I'm, I'm not really sure how I'd use this, but, I mean, the Klipoth, they're sort of the, the dark mirror of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. The rough idea of the Tree of Life is that it's a map to... Not just human consciousness and existence, but, you know, to what transcends there all the way up to the Godhead. And from Malchus to Kether. Exactly. The Klipoth is sort of the flip side of that. They're the map of the darker, more debased, broken side of consciousness. The idea is that, as well as providing a way of, of sort of talking about these things, that they provide you with the, the groundwork to do rituals to work through some of the things that, that may be broken inside you that need fixing. I can sort of see why taking a very literal interpretation of Derlith's uh, representation of Yogg-Sothoth as a bunch of spheres, why he would take this map, which is basically a bunch of spheres connected by paths, and say, right, okay, this is obviously the same thing. In terms of how we'd use it in a game... It's a great way to do a cult crossover. It is, yep, yep. And... But, but I mean, I guess it's more than that in that this is all part of ritual magic. We've established that sorcerers and ritual magicians in the mythos call upon Yogg-Sothoth as a source of power. That maybe you do have a sorcerer who is tapping into the debased, very broken human side of themselves and the way that then transcends into something cosmic at the bottom end of it and using Yogg-Sothoth almost as a guide through his own personal underworld. You could extrapolate that a little bit then and say that Yogg-Sothoth is the Kryptoth, but then have Tumat at will as the Sephiroth. Yes. So they mm. are two sides of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that works. 
Then the path up to Ketha through the, the normal Kabbalistic tree of life is him leading you through the gate. because yeah, and The shadow of that Naamoth to Thamiel. Because you have that broken Sephiroth in the middle of the whole tree of life. In ritual magic, this idea of the long dark night of the soul, the abyss, this thing that you've got to cross in order to transcend and achieve cosmic consciousness. Grant also touches upon this. He links Yogg-Sothoth to the demon Corinzon. That sort of ties in very much with, you know, what you were just saying about him being the opener of the gate. Mm. I think there's there's also a similar argument that's put forward for Nodens as well, that one of the interpretations of the uh, the Great Abyss that Nodens is supposed to guard is the uh, receptacle of the human subconscious. Mm. And that's, that's why it's accessible through the dreamlands, is that it's the place where the human subconscious becomes closest to its source. And I think the same parallel is drawn in, I think it's in the Encyclopedia Cthuliana, that it's Dan Harms makes the connection there as well, with, again, referencing Grant. But thinking about this idea of a sorcerer going on his or her own personal path through the Klippoth, the something you know powered by Yogg-Sothoth going through their own personal you know, trauma and underworld, if they were drawing enough magic there and if Yogg-Sothoth was opening the way, then that could start manifesting in reality around them. What is inside becomes what is outside, or they draw people into their own personal nightmares. And rather than having to have it through sorcery, I've also come across some of those terms in yoga and meditation, the, the long night of the soul, seen as a, almost something to overcome or a danger within those. So you could take any bunch of PCs and, and have them sort of enter this other realm by a, a multiplicity of means, really. If you had a mythos-infused branch of yoga or Buddhism, for example, that was leading you through some very specific meditations mm. that you know, was leading you through you know, mandalas that were based on you know, aspects of Yogg-Sothoth. And that, but people know, wouldn't necessarily know that, right? Exactly. In fact, it occurs to me, there's a book I read some time back, a novel by Mark Laidlaw called the 37th mandala which is very much along these lines a sort of mystical cult that leads to transcendence into something you know conscious cosmic consciousness something far beyond human it's not explicitly a mythos book but dear god it maps exactly onto what we've been talking about and now to get real one of the uh, common images of yogsothoth on the internet bears an unfortunate resemblance to our real deity matt right indeed as I said, he boiled for our sins. Yes, Matt speaks of the one, the only, flying spaghetti monster. So, is this indeed just another avatar of Yogg-Sothoth? Will we ever know the truth? Tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs> for al dente. Thank you. Thank you. And once again... We would like to thank each and every one of you who have backed us via Patreon. The money you give us keeps the podcast going. It fuels it. It pays for all our running costs. It just really keeps us going. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we have some new people to thank. Yes, we start off at the $1 level with a big thanks to Patrick McAfee. Indeed. Thank you very much, Patrick. Yes, thank you, Patrick. And moving on, also our thanks go out to David Murray. So thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. And thank you very much to Joshua Eaves. Thank you, Joshua. Hey, thanks, Joshua. And a thank you, and I think possibly a welcome back, to Arnie Hunt. That's definitely a return there. Yep, thank you very much, Arnie. Thank you, Arnie, and welcome back. And now... (laughs) Like Wilbur Waitley standing atop Sentinel Hill, howling into the winds, we howl into the internet, summoning our thanks for those brave and transcendent souls who have backed us at the $5 level. You know, howling, I think, is the first time that someone has described that shit accurately. That is the first time. With all our talk of mysticism, should should we go full Goetia with this? <laughs> oh, evocating something, yeah. <laughs> As we've mentioned perhaps before on the podcast, we do try to limit ourselves to two songs per episode for a variety of reasons, but mostly that of common decency. If you are waiting for us to sing to you, we shall get to you very soon. Thank you very much for your patience. And ultimately, there is no escape. Our first one on the list today is our good friend and parapsychologist and looker into the unknown realms... Mr. C.J. Romer. 
Hey, hey, thank you very much, CJ. Oh, thank you, CJ. We really do appreciate this. And uh, we, we hope that you are satisfied with what we're about to do to you. Get your sand check dice ready, mate. <laughs> yeah, CJ! He is the gate! He is the key! He is the Roma! And the next one, he gave me warning that this was coming at Contingency. My good old uh, lodge mate for that convention, Andrew Dacey. Why the hell are you inflicting this on me, Andrew? I do not know. But thank you very much. <laughs> I, hang on. There's a strange logic to this that I came up with the idea that if people donate $5 a show, that we'll sing to them. But Matt seems to have taken it as a personal affront. It's, tor- it's torture it. is what it is. <laughs> Whereas I think Paul and I actually quite enjoy this. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Andrew. And and yes, uh, yes, words fail me. Thank you, Andrew. Meanwhile, on social media... Now, I understand we have a new review on iTunes, which we're always very appreciative of, and this one from Dalpo in New York City. We met Dalpo when we went out to Necronomicon, didn't we? We did, yes, and and he contributed a lovely art piece to the Blasphemous Tome, Issue 3. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, if you've seen that fantastic woodcut in there of, of Deep Ones looking sinister in the night tide, that's his work. His review is entitled, Three Very Weird Friends. Yep, he hit the nail right on the head there. The Good Friends of Jackson Elias is my favourite podcast. Scott, Paul and Matt have introduced me to great cultural objects and re-enthused my gaming life with their thoughtful conversations. The show is well-structured while never feeling scripted or false. It just feels like I'm hanging out with three good friends. Good, very strange friends. Each of whom has an individual personality that one gets to know over the course of the podcast's development. And they talk about the films, games and other weird horrors that interest them. Top-notch. Well, thank you very much, Dalpo. Um, I'm intrigued to know that I've ever introduced anyone to a great cultural object, but that was a great compliment. Thank you very much. Well, yes, you, you, thank you. You, you reference them as uh, what they used for the uh, animatronics underneath Wilbur Waitley's costume. Oh, I did. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a great <laughs> cultural object, but it's an object, all right? Yes. Yeah, thank you very much, Dalpo. We, we really do appreciate that, and we're very glad to hear that you're, you're enjoying the podcast so much. And if anyone else is enjoying the podcast and feels like sharing this with the world, we would absolutely love it if you wrote a review. The reviews on iTunes in particular make our podcast that bit more visible and, and help us get the word out to other people and, and spread the love over the world. We've also had a lot of feedback on our System Matters episode. Our first up comes from Evelyn M on G+. Lamentations of the Flame Princess relies greatly on the GM's and the scenario's attitude to provide the horror. As a player, I would more fear interacting with anything in a Lamentation scenario than in a Call of Cthulhu one, because I know that Lamentation scenarios are designed so that horrible, twisted things happen to the characters. System-wise, Lamentations is nearly D&D, while the Call of Cthulhu system has more mechanics that support the horror genre. I strangely consider Lamentations to be a more hardcore horror game than Cthulhu, but in fact this is only due to the nature of the scenarios, so in the case of Lamentations, system matters only a little bit. That's a really interesting observation, I think. I can kind of see that, because I think often the way Call of Cthulhu is played, much of the game is a fairly tame investigative process for a lot of gamers, I think. Yeah, for yeah, I mean, a fair number of scenarios, they start off with something mundane, a hook that gradually draws the investigators in and then reveals layer after layer of weirdness until you get to the core of the horror. It's rare that you have something 
too deadly or sanity-blasting happen to you early on in the game. Whereas in most of the published Lamentation stuff, shit can happen at any stage, and Mm. usually does. And I've certainly played Call of Cthulhu scenarios like that, but maybe we should do a few scenarios more akin to that sudden death horror that one might get in Lamentations. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly written my share of Cthulhu scenarios which sort of start off by punching the investigators in the face and then, you know, kind of make things worse for them. But I guess there's a sort of difference in expectations there. This is something I think we touched upon in the episode. The fact that it's relatively easy to create a Lamentations character. You can do so quite quickly. Whereas, you know, if you're using the quickfire rules, you probably still can do them maybe five, ten minutes, but there's slightly more investment in Call of Cthulhu. So as a result, as a keeper, I'm probably less inclined just to throw random death into a scenario. But no, I think that's a good point. I think there's probably certainly room, particularly in convention games, for real bastard adventures that can kill you at any time. It's also that the, the scenarios in Lamentations are vastly broader than the range that I think you'd get in Cthulhu. Really? That, yeah, because yeah. at least Cthulhu has certain codified expectations that the fact it's either going to be a gaslight, a modern day, or a 1920s game. For the vast majority of them, there are obviously hmm. the outliers there. So you're familiar with the setting. You're familiar with the rule set. Generally, the mechanics of a monster are going to be the same in one scenario as they're going to be in another. Things like Dark Young has, say, codified stats that are in the rule book. But with Lamentations, there's very little in by way of codified monsters mm. in there. A vampire in one scenario could be different to the vampire in another one. You've got vastly different settings. Think of something like Veins of the Earth compared to Red and Present Land. They're all their own almost different games. They're just they have a commonality of similar mechanics between them. But even then, they're not the same across the board. But also, pretty much any setting in Call of Cthulhu, we've got the solace of the real world is there. You mm. know, it's not a protection against the horrors of the mythos but if you're just on the start of an adventure you know you can end up going to a sanitarium you can go to the hospital and most yeah, of the mostly. time you can expect reasonable treatment and a civilized world to fall back on i mean you do have some variants in call of cthulhu like the dreamlands for example where you know, you can play with those expectations but, yeah, you're right, that is, is not the default. By but I think case. we could play with those expectations in the real world perhaps more than mm. we commonly do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, considering the amount of mythos stuff that warps or changes reality or perceptions of reality, you can really go to town with that. And Noah Lloyd over on G Plus states, I love rules-heavy systems because they make the final story more unpredictable. I love rules-light systems because imagination makes the final story also unpredictable. So I get that you like unpredictable, Noah. Um, <laughs> which, which I am entirely behind. I mean, particularly as a GM, I want my games to be unpredictable. Particularly if I'm at a convention and I'm running the same scenario more than once. Mm. I do not want it to play out the same way each time. And yeah, I, I'll go along with that. That the system can go a long way towards helping that by having failed roles, particularly failed push roles in Call of Cthulhu, do unpredictable things... I'm definitely sharing the sentiment there, but I'll take out the rules-heavy bit. It depends what you call rules-heavy, because there are an awful lot of indie gamers out there, for example, who point at Call of Cthulhu as being a rules-heavy game. They played Living Steel? Yeah, but but compared to the kinds of games they're normally playing, it is a rules-heavy game. Because, you know, it's not just a single sheet of rules. And over on Twitter, we have a comment from Baz Stevens of the What Would the Smart Party Do? podcast. He says... In reference to, does system matter? Of course it matters. Just not as much as you might think. And other stuff matters too. The people you play with, the room, the snacks, the energy levels, all that. And yes, Baz, I can see what you mean. I think it does. Yeah, and I think really good snacks will trump most games. Yeah, you always look weirdly at that one that brings carrot sticks and hummus. Well, I did reply that I was going to write an essay entitled, Do Snacks Matter?, Yes, could be they do. And now let's wrap things up with one final question. How have we made use of Yogg-Sothoth in our own games? Have we done so? And are we now perhaps more inspired to do so? I think I've not really considered how to use Yogg-Sothoth before. He's just been an overarching entity that can do anything. But I think if we narrow the focus down and say look at what would we do with a child of Yogg-Sothoth 
what would we do with time? What would we do with travelling distances through space? And just look at a single aspect of the gods' abilities, if you like, then that's more productive. I mean, that's something you just touched on, which perhaps we didn't really go into before, which is the fact that Yogg-Sothoth is perhaps unique in Lovecraft stories for being the only god we see there to have human offspring, or offspring with a human. We see you know, other forms of crossbreeding with humanity in, in other stories. But this time, we have demigods running around. And, uh, yeah, I think this is yeah something I could certainly play with in this scenario. The only instance in the in the original fiction I can think of, but it's definitely been extrapolated in the in the gaming circuit, particularly in one campaign that will remain nameless. But yeah, there is another child of a god that there is out there. Well, that's all the Yogg-Sothoth we've got time for this week. So, until next time, it's a good night from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Blasphemoustomes.com Don't you be body shaming your software. <laughs> <laughs> uh.